Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 88, Getting Started with Standards-Based Grading. Now, standards-based grading, which is sometimes called mastery-based grading or specifications grading, first appeared in the educational world in the early 1980s. The main idea behind standards-based grading is to measure actual learning rather than just points earned. In this episode, Denora and I will talk about the reasons for using a standards-based grading system and a few ways to get started using standards-based grading in your classrooms. This episode, it is focused more on teachers than on students, although students who are in a standards-based classroom can also benefit from hearing about why teachers chose the standards-based grading system and why that system may be more fair to students as well. So when I first introduced standards-based grading in my classes, I asked students, so if John here gets an 81% on the final and Joe over there gets a 79% on the final, what are their letter grades in the class? And usually students will respond that John has a B minus and Joe has a C plus. And then I ask them, okay, how can I tell looking at those two grades, what additional knowledge or skills John has based on those two extra percentage points? And nobody can ever tell me, and I couldn't tell you either. Enter standards-based grading, which does actually tell us what additional knowledge or skills John has compared to Joe. The usual way of measuring whether students are meeting course objectives is a quantitative points-based system broken down into 10% scale. 90 to 100% is an A, 80 to 89% is some kind of B, and so forth. Although this method gives us numbers that can easily be compared and used in mathematical and statistical work, it does not actually represent either the real work that students are doing or their comprehension of the material. It also creates an inordinate amount of stress for students who worry about percentage points as a person on a fixed income might worry about pennies and dollars. This can create the same decision fatigue and for similar reasons. Standards-based grading addresses both the issue of meaningful grading and the issues of student stress and motivation. In a standards-based system, each class grade is based on the completion of a certain amount of work or work at a certain level of complexity or both. For example, a C might require a completion of 15 of 20 homework assignments, two of three tests, and seven of 10 quizzes with a passing score. A B might require completion of 17 of the homework assignments, all three examinations, eight of 10 quizzes, thus adding more work, and a final paper, thus adding more complexity. The system is pass-fail rather than point-based, so a passing score could be set at 70% correct for homework assignments, 80% for quizzes, and 75% for examinations. However, a student who receives the 71 and a student who receives the 78 will still both have a pass on a given assignment where the pass score is 70% or higher. Another method for assigning a pass is completion of assignments based on a rubric provided to the students. Standards-based grading is also meaningful grading. It shows us how we know whether a student has mastered the course content or met the course objectives. 
it shows the qualitative difference between an A and an A minus, or between a C and a C plus, by showing not only what a student learned, but how well they understood it. And that information generally isn't really available in a point-based system. Standards-based grading also reduces student stress while increasing their motivation. I've seen it. When students see that only two or three percentage points can often make the difference between one grade level and another, that forces them to focus on the grade, not the quality of their work. And research on reward systems shows that when the focus is on the reward, the work suffers. This research, which was cited in detail by Dan Pink in his book Drive, which we'll link to in the show notes, includes work with students, employees, and others who are offered a reward as motivation for good performance. And the standards-based grading system, while still delivering a grade for work performed, takes the focus off the difference between an 82 and an 84%, and it moves the focus toward the quality of the work. And this reduces the stress that students otherwise encounter, as well as changing the source of their motivation from the grade to the quality of their work. Students in standards-based systems report that although they initially feel resistance to the system because of its unfamiliarity, they eventually find that it reduces their stress. Instead of wondering if their final exam is going to tank their grade, they can complete a certain number of assignments at a certain level of quality, pass-fail is the usual standard, and finish the semester knowing that they will reliably exit with the grade they decided to pursue at the beginning of the course. Adam and I will link to several books and articles in the show notes which guide instructors through setting up standards-based grading, but we also want to give you an overview here. When you set up standards-based grading, think of it as building the grade from the ground up. It will be important to teach students that they cannot lose points because in general, there are no points, only credit. Credit is earned by completing assignments to a defined minimum standard. There are two sets of targets to think about when setting up standards-based grading, assignment targets and grade completion targets. So assignment targets are assignment-based. What score is the minimum necessary for this assignment to count toward the grade? So for many assignments, this could be as simple as complete or incomplete. It was done or it wasn't. And that's the first kind of assignment target. In these cases, the score, usually one out of one, simply acknowledges this is complete. I use complete incomplete for probably 60 to 70% of the assignments I assign my students these days. So discussion boards, collaborative notes files, terms and concepts lists, study groups. Yes, I'll give feedback if the answers are egregiously incorrect, but I'm not going to be picky about their writing style in a discussion board or when they're making a list of definitions. Another kind of assignment target is the qualitative excellence scale, which goes excellent, meets expectations, needs improvement, unsatisfactory. This is the kind of evaluation scale that most of your students will be facing the moment they hit the workforce. That's what, you know, mid-year reviews or once-a-year reviews happen. You know, they get excellent here, needs, ex needs expectations here, needs improvement there, unsatisfactory here. And so we might as well use it for evaluating their qualitative work. For this kind of work, try to avoid using points or the regular A to F letter grades on written assignments. Instead, use this scale and define what that kind of work at each level looks like so the student knows what it looks like. And then provide them a rubric or a flowchart that helps them judge the quality of their own work. And for this scale, meets expectations and excellent, those are passing scores. Needs improvement and unsatisfactory are not. And the last kind of assignment target is the percentage score. If you must give exams, and we recognize some instructors for some disciplines must, 
then make them exams that can be retaken at least once and to give a target score to meet. So 70% is the usual standard. So if a student gets a 70 or a 71%, they've passed that exam, and it's the same as if they got an 85 or a 99%, because we're no longer dealing with points, just with competency. Some students may need help getting used to this system. Many of them have been trained for years to worry about every percentage point, so eliminating points is going to throw most of them for a loop. Remind them, frequently, of how you grade, by standards, not by points, and help them understand the standards. A good way to do this is to provide a rubric that shows how a student can meet expectations, get a passing score, and credit for the assignment. An example of a standards-based rubric for an essay with sources might look something like this. For meets expectations, organization, at least two of these conditions are met and the other is attempted. First, the introduction gives an overview of the argument presented. Second, the paper's main points follow the order of the argument. Third, the conclusion summarizes the argument and the evidence presented for it. Then for the sources category in this rubric, we might say at least two of these conditions are met and the other is attempted. First, the sources are all academically acceptable sources. Second, the textbook's not used as a source. And third, there's no more than one web page used as a source, and it's either a .gov or a .edu page. Writing. At least three of these conditions are met and the other is attempted. The paper applies evidence from at least three different sources to the argument. The paper contains no more than two spelling or grammar errors per page. The paper is written clearly, concisely, and completely as defined in Adam's Writer's Workshop 4. At least one solution for the central problem is presented to the reader. For the citation section, you might say at least two of these conditions are met and the others attempted. The paper uses MLA formatted or whatever your formatting style is, citations throughout. The paper has no more than one citation error. The paper has a works cited page with all sources correctly listed. Formatting. At least two of these conditions are met and the other is attempted. The paper is in Times or Times New Roman 12-point font with one-inch margins. The paper is eight to ten pages long. The pages are numbered. Given a meets expectations rubric like this, there are several ways students can go higher and get an exceeds expectations, starting with making sure all conditions are met. They can also include additional sources or solutions or reduce errors. And on the other side, falling short of these conditions results in either a needs improvement or an unsatisfactory. And in these cases, simply commenting on where the assignment fell short of the meets expectations rubric, that goes a long way toward helping students learn what's missing or what needs to be improved on. You might make separate needs improvement and unsatisfactory rubrics to use for yourself, like where am I putting my cutoff point for you know, at least how many of those conditions have to be met. So maybe if they met one condition, but they didn't meet the other two or three, all right, they need improvement. But if they didn't meet any of them, then that's an, you know, uh, that's an unsatisfactory moment. And this also opens the door to explaining to the student what they missed and how to fix it. So if they missed using MLA formatted citations, then you could say that. You could say this part of the citation rubric you didn't use MLA formatted citations. I don't understand your citations. 
And that also means that it's definitely going to have more than one citation error, right? Because they're not using a standard citation format. So they need to fix both those things in the citations area. Or you look at the sources area. You know, they needed to give you academically acceptable sources, and instead they're bringing in web pages, you know, blogs. It's like, nope, these are not academically acceptable. Here's what academically acceptable means. Remember, we went over this when we talked about how to do the essay. Refer them back to the original directions and say, go read in depth where we talked about what an academically acceptable source is, and go talk to the librarian too. All right. So when you have this kind of a rubric for standards-based grading, you're basically saying, this is the standard. Meet the standard. You get a meets expectations. Now you've got credit for that assignment. It should also be obvious that standards-based grading is focused on helping students improve over time which means they'll have to be given the opportunity to resubmit work after getting it back with a score that did not meet the target standard. Adam's policy is two chances at a multiple choice true-false exam, and at least three chances on any written assignment before they have to meet with him. This is if the written feedback isn't helping them for some reason. While this may seem like a lot of work, you can also set up the class so that not all students will be turning in papers at the last minute. How? That's the next step, setting grade completion targets. Setting up the class to be standards-based generally means setting several different targets for students to aim for. One for a C, one for a B, and one for an A. And that's for that grade in the class, not on an assignment. It's up to you whether each grade simply requires more work, more complex work, or both. Here are three different ways to set up your class grade completion targets. So method number one is additional work equals a higher grade. If you're teaching a class where repetition and practice is part of what the course needs to teach, for example, you're doing a math course, students need to practice those equations over and over again, then you might set up your grades to be a certain number of assignments turned in and completed over the term. An A might be 22 homework assignments completed with a score of 70% or higher. A B maybe 20 assignments completed with that score. A C might be 18. There are 22 available, but a C would only complete 18 of them. Method two, higher quality or difficulty leads to a higher grade. If you're teaching a class where qualitative standards are already common, you may want to set up your grades to be judged based mainly on quality or difficulty. For example, a student who wants a C only has to do an annotated bibliography for their paper assignment, while a student who wants a B has to do a literature review based on the annotated bibliography, and a student who wants an A has to turn in a bibliography, a literature review, and a research paper. The third method combines the first two. Higher quality or higher difficulty plus more work is what gets you a higher grade. So in either case, you may feel students should both have to do more work and do it to a higher level of difficulty to qualify for an A in your course. So in this case, you may want to try what's called the bundle system. So in the bundle system, students are given several different types of work to complete. Some are basic assignments like vocabulary tests, for example, while others are more complex, maybe an argumentative essay or an independent lab experiment. You might set up your class so each kind of assignment is in a separate bundle. And within that system, a student has to finish X number of bundles to achieve a certain grade in the course. For example, let's say you're teaching an intro math class. You could have three bundles. 
finishing one is a C, well, finishing two is a B, and finishing all three is an A. You could even order them to be done in order. Like, you have to finish the first bundle or you can't finish the second. You have to finish the second bundle or you can't finish the third. So those homework assignments that I mentioned earlier, they could be one bundle. That could be the homework bundle. And to complete the bundle, the student has to complete 18 of the 22 available assignments at a 70% for a C. But they also have to pass at least three of the four exams with a 70% or better to get a B. And to get an A, they have to complete both of those bundles, plus they have to do an applied math project, like a budget for a startup or an engineering proposal or something like that. Another way to do the bundle system is to create a lot of different types of bundles, lots of different kinds of assignments, and set the grade based on completion of a certain number of bundles. So instead of saying, do these bundles in this order, you could just give students a choice of maybe 12 bundles, and then set the grades to five bundles complete as a C, six completed as a C plus, up to 11 as an A, and either way works. The main idea behind standards-based grading is giving students goals to work toward rather than having them feel like points are being taken away for failure, which is the way way too many students see a 98%. Mm -hmm. On a teaching forum we're part of, one woman recently said when she was in college, she got a 98% on an assignment and all she could see was a mistake and failure. The idea that 98% was an amazing grade didn't even occur to her. She was that conditioned to see anything less than perfect as failure. Her professor at the time got her to understand that 98 was actually an amazing grade. Many of our students need this reality check. And they may need it a few times before it really clicks. Now for our experiences with this, I don't use this system yet, though Adam is trying to get me to. Come to the dark side, we have cookies. But I can see me using standards-based grading for term papers, or offering students a path to a final grade based on papers only, or tests only, or a mix of both throughout the term. We create opportunities to give credit for study groups that meet regularly. But one of my concerns is, how do I make sure I don't get overwhelmed with grading and deadlines? And how do I make sure my students don't get overwhelmed by all the choices with all the bundles? So the reason it keeps you from getting overwhelmed with grading and deadlines is, well, it reduces your grading load because only a few students will choose to do the A-level bundles. Only a few students are going to choose to do every single assignment or most of the assignments you offer them. Many of them will say, I need to pass this class. That means a C. This is the work I need to do for a C, so that's how much work I'll do. And that means you're getting, on average, fewer assignments because you're not going to be buried by 120 papers in the last week of class. You'll get papers only from students who want to go to that level of complexity or who want to do that much work. And making sure they're not overwhelmed by the choices, I admit that's still an issue because so many of them have been trained for so long that they have to do every single thing the teacher gives them. All I can do is keep on reminding them, no, they don't have to do every single assignment available. When we were in person, I was mentioning that at the beginning of every class. I would say, by the way, do you have to do all the assignments in this class to pass? And at first I'd get, yes. And then I'd say, no, look at the syllabus. And then we'd go look at the syllabus and I'd say, how many assignments do you have to complete to get a C in this class? And they'd say, six bundles, okay. And how many are usually in a bundle? Five, and how many of them do you have to complete in the bundle to get the bundle credit? Three, okay, so do you see you don't have to do every assignment? It takes a while to break through that. But what I can do is keep reminding them, 
You only have to do what you signed up for. And really, to help them keep from being overwhelmed, give them a Google form at the beginning of the term, which they fill out so that they know I've committed to this, I've committed to that. The one I've created this term will even send them a checklist so they can use that checklist to keep themselves on track and to remember what they said they would do. When I was first using standards-based grading, I actually had to write a defense of it to my chair. And two students who took courses with me in a standards-based course, they gave me these little testimonials. One of them said, the module system, which is what standards-based grading was at the time, it gave me tangible opportunities to apply the information that I learned. And rather than being penalized for not understanding a topic and thus choosing not to complete the assignment, I was given the chance to assess my own understanding and choose the level of work I wanted to complete. This is very much like the labor force. I've worked a minimum of 30 hours every week my entire undergraduate career, and what I've come to learn is that working is not about memorizing arbitrary concepts, but about work completion. Another student said, the standard-based grading system was a better grading system because it takes pressure off the student and allows the student to choose which module and grade they want. That creates a less stressful course load. This allows them to choose what their coursework would look like in the beginning of the semester. For the students that choose a certain grade module, the coursework is based on their understanding of the material rather than how much information they can regurgitate during an exam. Now I've used standards-based grading since 2015 and every semester I see students completing better quality work and remembering the course content not just for the exams but long after the course is over. They come back and talk with me about it two, three semesters later. Remember when we talked about this in your criminology class? Yeah, well that stuck with me and here's why. The way students can use this if you're lucky enough to be in a standards-based class, make sure you review the system your teacher is using. Make sure you understand how many of each kind of assignment you need to do and what the assignment and grade completion targets are. Make sure you understand what the resubmission system looks like. Make sure you learn how to achieve the grade you want and start working on that early in the semester. Also, remember that points are no longer the point. Focus instead on hitting those assignment targets. Look at your work as building up from zero. Think of it as leveling up, like you do in a video game. And teachers, I promise, this system will make your life easier. Grading will become simpler. Communicating with students will become easier. Because instead of arguing over points, now your students are going to start looking for ways to improve the quality of their work. And you'll also be able to explain to a student or an administrator how you arrived at a grade and what could be changed or improved to increase it. Earlier, we talked about Dan Pink's research that shows giving people autonomy, mastery, and purpose improves their work and their dedication to it. Giving students the opportunity to choose what work they're going to do and how much work they're going to do in order to achieve a set grade will give them a sense of control over what they need to do in your class and that makes it more likely they'll achieve it. So that's what we have for you in episode 88. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 89, when we'll talk about how you can't really learn from an easy teacher. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. 
we want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learning made easier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.